0: Hi, I'm Jen Kavanagh, curator of Bow Street Police Museum, and you're listening to the Bow Street Society Podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to show three of the Bow Street Society Podcast. It's November 2021 and we have an exciting show lined up for you. I'm TG Campbell, award-winning author of the Bow Street Society book series. And
2: I am Richard A. Boxhaw.
1: Later on, we will be doing a counter-interview with Dr Weeks and talking to real-life prison officer Gary Clark.
2: And in a moment, I will be taking my final visit to Bow Street in the year 1896 and talking about the formation of the Metropolitan Police. Now it's that time again when we delve into the Holborn Herald for the latest Bow Street Society news.
1: First is the news that there are very limited number of tickets available for the Books on the Beach book signing event in Blackpool on the 20th of August 2022. I'll be among the 40 plus authors signing their books and I'd love to see you there as well. And to buy your tickets, visit the Boat Society website at www.boatsociety.com and click on book signing events at the top of the page.
2: On the 26th of October, Tani was on the new voice panel alongside authors Mark Richards and Away Khan and host Caroline Maston to discuss inspiration, acting out scenes and much more. She also took part in a pub quiz alongside author SJI Holiday and host Ben Bruce on the 28th of October. Both events were live streamed into the UK Crime Book Club's Facebook group, but you can still watch them on the Bow Street Society YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and click on the bell icon whilst you're there to be notified when new videos are uploaded.
1: I was also delighted to welcome Neil R.A. Bell to my blog this month for a virtual coffee with an archivist. He is a widely respected student of the Jack the Ripper case and his book Capturing Jack the Ripper in the Boots of a Bobby in Victorian London is a must read for anybody with apologies out there. He also co-authored the reproduction of Sir Howard Vincent's Police Code of 1889 that we mentioned in the last podcast, and obviously, though I could talk to Neil for hours about both of these topics, our chat on the blog focused mainly on his role as the volunteer archivist at the Leicester Police Historic Collection. So, to read it, all you have to do is go to the Bow Society website.
2: Finally, the ebook of the fifth volume of the Bow Street Society Casebook, The Case of the Fearful Father and Other Stories, is now available to pre-order from Amazon. It releases on the 10th of December and features an array of familiar faces from the Bow Street Society, some who've never appeared in Short Story before.
1: So thank you to everyone who downloaded copies of the first four volumes of the Bow Society Casebook when they were on a pre-promotion at the beginning of October. The support resulted in some of the books taking the top three spots in the top 100 free Kindle chart for crime fiction anthologies and collections.
2: Which is really, really impressive. I didn't actually find that out until we were rehearsing uh, for this recording today. So we're going to have a little chat about the the short story collections, the case books. Um, Tell me what's different about the format of these short stories compared to the long form murder mysteries that you write.
1: So in the case book short stories, there's no murders. There might be deaths, of so accident or suicide. But that was a conscious decision on my part to do that. Um, so whereas in the long books, you'd have sort of complex sort of murder mystery. The short books focus more on sort of moral or more bizarre puzzles and problems.
2: So why have you chosen not to put any murders in the books?
1: One reason was because of the space um, with the murder mysteries can get quite complex you don't really have that space with the short stories but also I wanted to challenge myself to sort of think beyond and beyond the format of a murder mystery sort of think a bit more outside the box and there's also certain plot lines and ideas that I have that which can't be developed into a full-length novel but which I still want to do and still want to explore so the short stories give me the opportunity to explore those sort of simpler sort of more condensed um, mysteries, but also gives opportunity to explore the world of both society and the relationships within the society members away from a murder case. Which
2: came first? Did you start writing these as a way of getting into it, or did you start with the long form stories?
1: The long form stories came first and the short stories came after.
2: So what inspired you then to, to start writing short stories in the universe you'd already created?
1: It was actually, originally the intention was to um, put the first short story collection, the case of the Shrink Shopkeeper and other stories, on the underground, on a scheme that's called Books in the Underground. And so um, the idea with the short story collection was to have them a lot shorter so you could actually read them on your commute. So rather than having to commit to a long book and having to stop mid-chapter while you, when, you, when you get off the train or get off the bus, you could literally just read those short stories, get an idea, and get a feel for the world and the characters, and get also get a really good introduction to the books as a whole so if you're not quite sure if the series is for you you can read the short stories get an idea of the you know the characters in the universe the kind of plots that is in the bigger books and we go from there.
2: So when you wrote the stories that formed the case of the shrinking shopkeeper at that point you hadn't decided it was going to be an annual thing?
1: No but what I quickly found was that when I first did my newsletter I wanted to do something that was a bonus material that you couldn't get anywhere else. So obviously you had the main book sale um, at that time. But I thought, well, I wanted to give my readers something a bit extra. And so I know some authors will give out um, whole stories, but I thought well, wouldn't it would not be good to actually have like a serialised version in the newsletter, very much in the sort of in the tradition of, sort of Charles Dickens when he would serialise Oliver Twist. And so very much that's why I started doing the short stories, more of a regular thing. And so that's why they now are serialised throughout the year in the Gaslight Gazette newsletter, which I release monthly.
2: One of the things I particularly enjoy is you use the short stories as an opportunity to put characters together who wouldn't necessarily logically fit. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes, because so you have uh, a couple of occasions where, so Dr. Rupert Alexander, who is a veterinary surgeon, pairs up with uh, Mr. Callahan Skinner, who is a, like a bodyguard to um, a retired sea captain and he's also a guns a guns expert. So you wouldn't necessarily think that those two would pair up. Also, you know, there's other um, times where like Dr. nettlock who's very much sort of about science, is paired up with Mr. Virgil Verity, who is a spiritualist expert. So it very much gives you opportunity to, to explore, I say, those different relationships and how within those two like relationships of so their parents, you can actually have that conflict between what those two characters stand for. Stand for. But also they've got to sort of put this aside, almost be able to investigate the case and solve that problem. So you've got as much opportunity for you to explore conflict and differences as much as to sort of explore the similarities as well. So
2: I think um, all the stories are, they're formatted similarly, aren't they? So a client yeah. visits Miss Trent at the Bow Street Society, um, explains the situation. Obviously, she decides that it is a case. Otherwise, there would be no story to tell. Yeah. Um, and then assigns. Uh, a pair of people. And it's usually a pair, isn't it? It's usually. Yes. Characters. So usually in every short story, you've got Miss Trent. Occasionally is it Sam and. Um...
1: Miss Dexter might make an appearance. Yeah. Um, but with the whole thing of like, yeah, Miss Trent sort of seeing the client at the beginning that, that was very much sort of trying to sort of be a bit of a homage to, to kind of African and Dorian Shirk homes where the Shirk Holmes stories would start with a client come to see Holmes, and Holmes would then sort of look at the client and sort of tell the client about themselves and then i just by looking at them getting clues from their appearance um again I sort of wanted to sort of that's why I had it's that format and generally yeah, after that you have um the people who've been assigned would then tend to meet with the client to get a bit more information then the third section is normally them examine the scene or diamond the case a bit further. And then the fourth section is then the solution.
2: I mean, it's usually, but not exclusively, a pair of characters or yeah. other people occasionally pop up. Like I think, I remember Inspector Conway turned up in a horse racing one. Um, do you think certain of your characters lend themselves better to the short story format?
1: I think definitely, I think with, especially Mr. Verity, who is a spiritualist, if you want to do something a bit more sort of ghost story and more of that sort of gothic sort of tradition of um, Victorian ghost stories, he's very much good to actually have that in those stories. So again, it allows you to explore the other aspect of the era and of the society at the time. Um, But also you have people like Mr. Locke, who's illusionist. So if you have any sort of like locked room or more possible mysteries, he's very good to include on there. But even somebody as simple as um sort of knowing about where to get which train to get, the streets in London, like um steamboats and that sort of thing, that's Mr. Snyder. So I think those three very much do lend us more to the short stories than um, say somebody like um Dr. Locke, because even though Dr. Locke has been in short stories, because it's not a murder, she can't necessarily sort of reach her full potential within the short stories because she's very limited in terms of what she can actually bring to it because there isn't that murder element.
0: Is
2: there a pairing that you really want to do that you haven't done yet that you're kind of holding
1: back? Um, I would, I really enjoy the dynamic between, even though Conway Conway's not actually a member, I do really like the dynamic between Mr Elliot and Conway because they really don't like each other and there's that conflict there between them um, because Mr. Elliot hates everything that he thinks Conway stands for, and Conway just sees Mr. Elliot as the arrogant meddler. So I very much would like to explore that a bit more and also would like to do a bit more with Dr. Weeks, if I can, because he's just such a formidable character in terms of people and readers who say that he's one of their favourite characters. So I think he's got a lot of ground that he could uh, bring to um, the of stories... Uh, Outside the murder aspect, obviously he's got knowledge of poisons. He's got knowledge of like injuries. So there's definitely is more scope to explore sort of his character beyond the murder cases as well.
2: Does your writing process differ when you're approaching writing the short stories compared to the long mysteries?
1: Yes. So what I'll tend to do with the long mysteries is I will um, edit as I go along. Um, that's very much sort of keep track of the murder mystery, and the clues, the red herrings, with the short stories because they are obviously shorter. I tend to write the first draft straight off and then go through and edit that way, which is more of a traditional, conventional way of actually approaching the writing process.
2: Which of the two different types of stories you write, so the long form or the, or the case hmm. book or stories, um, do you prefer writing?
1: I like both of them for different reasons. I think with the long ones, you have more room to sort of push the character development further along and through the conflict, through the drama, as, as well as sort of the murder mystery. And also with, you could challenge myself with constructing those mysteries with the red herrings and clues. But with the short stories, because you have such a short space of time and space of writing space to actually do that, you are it, it challenges more, me more to actually get that sort of bit more character development and get that relationship sort of explored within that short time period. But also I really enjoy like, doing the more sort of impossible puzzles and more bizarre puzzles that are in the short stories, which wouldn't necessarily, I say, go with the um the, the longer books so um, for instance um in the first collection there's the case of the eerie encounter which is a supposedly dead man is but is spoken to by a young man at the time when he's supposedly dying on a train tracks so at a train station that wouldn't necessarily last for a whole book but it was perfect for a short story
2: so what can we look forward to in the book that comes out next month volume five the uh, case of the fearful father and other stories
1: so one of the most important things to mention is that Dr. Weeks does actually make his very first appearance in a short story in the collection, along with uh, Miss Polly Hicks, who also hasn't appeared in a previous collection of short stories. And also the Kershaw sisters, made famous from the spectral shot, they also make an appearance. So very much you've got some sort of new combinations of characters which haven't appeared in the case, but previously, but have been in the main books. Um, we've also got sort of the usual, like, you know, suspects like Mr. Maxwell, uh, Mr. Snyder, uh, Mr. Locke, obviously make an appearance. Um, but very much is sort of, again, it's within sort of the vein of um, sort of the more bizarre, the more unusual. Um, so one of the stories, sort of the question is, how is a, a thief using newspaper ad- advertisements to, to commit his crimes? Uh, another one um, is very much sort of around sort of the American diplomat and his daughter and his concerns about her. And there's also um, a seemingly um, locked room mystery where like a burglar um, managed to escape from a seemingly locked imposs- you know, locked room, a sealed room, basically how did they get out? Um, so it's very much sort of um, going in that vein that people have come to know from the case- casebook collections, but also with the new addition of the new characters gives that new slant to it basically. Is it
2: fair to assume that you're going to be writing one of these every year that you write a uh, main mystery?
1: Yes, that is the plan, because the short story collections very much add to the universe that's already established within the main books. And even though you have to read them in order. They are an excellent means to develop the characters in other ways, and say so those different combinations. Because with the mysteries, because there's so many of the characters who are involved in the bigger mysteries, you sometimes don't get that more intimate moments between them, whereas in the short stories, you do get the opportunity to do that. So I know in the case of the Gaston Gallop, there's a a, a a conversation between Dr. Rip Alexander and Mr. Skinner about how Mr. Skinner lost his hand. And it's that's something that wouldn't necessarily have happened in the main mystery because they're too busy branching off, separating off, going off to, to talk to different suspects, find different clues. And it's very much a bit more a fast-paced mystery where with, with the short stories, they have got a bit more time to be able to sort of, yeah, spend a bit of time with each other, get to know each other, and just really sort of explore this dynamics, really.
2: I really enjoyed The Gaster Gallop. I think I've said to you before that yeah. my favourite of the ones that I've read so far. Um, okay, so that's next month that comes out.
1: Yes, the 10th of December, yes.
2: Looking forward to that. I am very fond of Dr. Weeks, and I hadn't actually realised, I hadn't sussed that it not appeared in one of the short story collections before so i'm now looking that looking forward to that even more than i already was it is available for pre-order now and as you said it will be out on the 10th of december this year brilliant christmas present
1: hello i am miss rebecca trent and you are listening to the bow street society podcast And now here is Richard with a look at how attitudes that were initially hostile to the formation of a professional police force were shaped by the events of the 1810s and the 1820s.
2: For this third and final piece on the history of Bow Street, I'm standing inside the famous Bow Street Magistrates Court, located at 28 Bow Street. The date is the 29th of September 1896 and this building is less than 20 years old and houses both the Magistrates Courts and the Bow Street Police Station where I was (coughs) lucky enough to spend some time in the previous instalments of this feature. The first Metropolitan Police patrols walked the streets exactly 67 years ago today. In 1797, the magistrate, Patrick Colquhoun wanted a professional force to police London, but it was argued that it would make people feel as though they were being repressed by the government and, as such, was a bad idea. There were also fears that they could be corrupted to work against the establishment, as had happened in post-revolutionary France. It took a specific sequence of events to change that mindset, and it happened gradually. The first major event that shaped the collective state of mind that eventually enabled the formation of a professional police force took place in the year 1811. Near to Wapping was a street called the Ratcliffe Highway, which had a reputation of being one of the worst streets in the city. Brothels lined the streets, and it was close to the notorious Executioner's Dock, where pirates were disposed of by being tied to posts and left to drown as the tide came in. Number 29 was a draper's shop. Timothy Marr tried to make an honest trade and lived behind the shop with his wife, their three-year-old son, a 13-year-old apprentice and a servant girl. On Saturday, the 7th of December, Ma closed the shop and sent the servant girl, Margaret, out to buy oysters. She got back 30 minutes later and found that she was unable to access the property. And after a watchman had knocked on the door in an attempt to attract some attention, a neighbour offered to go to the back of the property and find out what was happening. When he got there, the back door was open and when he went in, he found the apprentice dead on the floor. The bones of his face were smashed and his brains had been deliberately pulverised and cast about the walls and across the shop counters. Marr's wife was also there, dead, with horrific head wounds. Timothy Marr was found behind that counter, battered to death, but most heinously, the body of the baby was found with his throat slit so savagely he was virtually decapitated. The motive was believed to be an attempt to steal Marr's savings, but these were discovered in the shop, untouched. The tool used to commit the atrocity was found at the scene and bore the initials JP. These murders caused such a degree of panic that a huge reward was offered to identify the culprit, the equivalent in those days to almost ten years' wages for the average working man. Eight days later, and before the culprit was identified, the landlord of the King's Arms Tavern on New Gavel Lane in Wapping was found hanged in his own cellar, along with the battered bodies of his wife and servant who had had their throats slit. The landlord of the Pear Tree Public House, no doubt incentivised by the gigantic reward, identified the owner of the murder weapon for the Ma Murders as one of his lodgers, a John Peterson. When the King's Arms murder suspect was arrested, he turned out to be another Pear Tree lodger, one John Williams. The evidence against him was slender, and Williams apparently committed suicide in his cell six days after being imprisoned, despite showing no behaviour consistent with depression or suicidal tendencies in the days leading up to his death. John Peterson was never prosecuted. The modern theory is that Williams was not the only person involved in the murders and was killed in his cell and made to look like he'd taken his own life to stop him from revealing other people that were involved. It is certainly true that evidence that other people were involved was ignored and John Williams was proclaimed the sole murderer. His body was paraded through whopping, propped up on the back of a cart. 10,000 people watched as he was taken past the Mars shop where someone turned his head to make it look as though he was observing the scene of his crime. These two gruesome sets of killings were in fact the 7th and 8th killings in the area, and thanks to the terror that all this caused in the local community, people started to believe in the idea of, and indeed start to demand, that there was a proper city-wide police force, although members of the House of Lords still protested against the idea on libertarian grounds. However, a plan to murder every member of the Cabinet in 1820 which was known as the Cato Street Conspiracy, was foiled by, amongst others, a squad of 12 Bow Street runners. The conspirators were publicly hanged and then had their heads chopped off. Some in the crowd supported the conspiracy, however, and the skill with which the men's heads had been removed led these supporters to think that the executioner may have been the surgeon Thomas Wakeley. So that night they tried to burn his house down. Although severely injured, Wakeley survived. The Cato Street conspiracy strengthened calls for a professional police force. And in 1821, there were riots following the death of Queen Caroline, the estranged wife of the Prince Regent. Although not always popular, the public thought the Prince Regent's refusal to allow her to attend his coronation was inexcusable. And when she died the following year, there was such an outpouring of grief that it was feared her funeral would turn into a riot. To avoid this, it was decided that the funeral cortege taking her body to the port of Harwich so she could be buried in Germany, would bypass London. But the Queen's subjects had other ideas and massed in numbers to try and force the procession through the capital. A magistrate that was there sanctioned the use of armed force and 50 shots were fired against the protesters. Two people died, but the numbers present were so great that the cortege was forced to go through the city. Public and political opinion swayed as a result of the murders, the conspiracy and the debacle of the Queen's funeral and other events. And the Home Secretary, Sir Robert Peel, drew up the act that finally created the Metropolitan Police in 1829. As I mentioned in the last segment, the Bow Street Runners existed side by side with the police force for a further 10 years until the organisation was finally disbanded in 1839. The building that I'm standing in now was built between 1878 and 1881, although the stonework above the door bears the year 1879, which was the year in which they were hoping the building was completed, even though it was not, and work dragged on for a further two years. The building housed both the magistrate's court and the police station, each of which occupied that space for over a century. Many famous or infamous people passed through Bow Street over the years before it closed, often before committal for trial, and these included the Cray twins, Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst, Dr Crippin, Lord haw Oscar Wilde, General Pinochet and Abu Hamza el-Masri. The Bow Street police station was finally closed after 109 years of operation in 1990, and the Magistrates' Court closed 16 years later in 2006. The building is now a hotel, although a portion of what was once the police station is now a museum that charts the history of both establishments. Well, I have enjoyed my time here in 1896, but it's now time for me to return to the 21st century. I have visited this amazing building, been to a shop where I bought some soap that turned out to contain some human fats, we won't talk about that, been thrown into the police cells, released, and listened to a drunk singing a song. Badly. My contact, that will help me return home, told me all that I need to do now is stand on the street corner outside the courts and sing I'm a little teapot whilst doing the actions, and he will pop up and return me to my own time. I really hope I'm not going to look foolish. Here goes. I'm a little teapot, short and stout. Here's my handle, here's my spout. When I get all steamed up, hear me shout, tip! me up and pour me out. Yeah, right. He said he'd be here straight away.
1: Are you alright, dear?
2: Yes. Thank you.
1: Why are you saying that you're a little teapot?
2: Well, I'm told that if I use that sequence of words at that location, I'll create a time transponder in order for my friend to locate me and take me back to the future.
1: I use gin to do that. You ought to try it. It would look less ridiculous.
2: No, it will definitely work. I was promised. I'll try again. I'm a little teapot short and stout. Here's my handle. here's my spout for God's
1: sake. I'm TG Campbell, creator of the Bow Street Society book series and you're listening to the Bow Street Society podcast.
2: Now we're going down to a dank cellar somewhere in London for a conversation with surgeon Doctor Percy Weeks.
1: We are here in a very cold underground room that is used by surgeon Doctor Percy Weeks to conduct postmortems on behalf of the Metropolitan Police. Uh, Doctor Weeks,
3: what's that thing that fella's using? You mean the mixing desk? Don't look like any desk I've ever seen. What the hell's it mixing?
1: Um, sound. We have recorded this interview so other people can listen to it.
3: Where's the cylinder go?
1: It's in my computer? Bullshit. Hey,
3: what does this dial do?
1: Don't touch that. Why not? Damn, that's peculiar. One, two, three.
2: Give me a double whiskey, darling. Ooh, ah, wah. Can I keep this thing? No, you cannot. It's fixed now. Don't press anything else.
3: I'll touch whatever the hell I like. If you touch it again, it will explode. Your point being?
1: We'll all be killed. So uh, let's get back to what we're supposed to be doing. Yes.
2: Dr. Weeks, here is our first question. You've previously visited the pub with literally blood on your hands. And even from here, I can see the coffee in that cup is more
3: than a few days old. Have you ever heard of the concept of hygiene? Yeah, of course I have. I just got no use for it. Folks I cut up are dead. They ain't worrying about a dirty scalpel. Besides, because here's my dead room. I want to make a mess, I will. You don't like it, you know where the door is.
1: Uh, This question comes from Gwony C. What made you want to work with dead people? And Did you not get on with living patients for some reason?
3: I don't abide patients whose hearts are beaten. The meat I got on that there slab don't complain about my goddamn bedside manner either. Folks will leave you alone too if they think you're cutting up a body. The dead don't get a voice, so I've got to talk for them. You can find out almost anything about a person just by studying their corpse, their habits, their diet, Had I had sex, give me someone living and I'll want to slip my wrists. Give me someone dead and I'll want to know everything they've got to tell me.
1: Hmm. Uh, You're close friends with Detective Inspector John Conway of Scotland Yard and also the clerk of the Bow Street Society, Miss Becca Trent. Uh, How did you come to work with those groups?
3: You don't know what you're talking about, darling. I I ain't friends with Miss Trent or the Bow Street Society. Do you hear me, Wolf? She ain't right in the head.
1: And Inspector Conway? Are you not fint of him?
3: Yeah. Conway knows I'm the best damn surgeon in London. That's why he keeps getting me in on his cases. Okay, so this one comes from listener C. Fox. What made you travel to London? Back when I was 18, back in Canada. I volunteered with a militia to help you Brits fight an uprising or something. That's when I met Dr. Peter Holmwood. The fella taught me everything I know about being a surgeon. I came to London in 93 to find him and get qualified. It's also the reason I've got this place.
1: Okay, so which country would you like to travel to and why? And that was asked by listener B. May.
3: France, where else? In Paris, a fella can eat his meal, drink his wine, and get between a woman's thighs all on the same table. Yeah, a fella can die happy in Paris or have a damn fine time trying.
1: Uh, Kim Lutier would like to know what happened in your life that made you turn to alcohol?
3: I was born. I, I like a drink. Ain't no problem with that, is there? When a fella's done his work, he wants to relax. And I like relaxing. So what's in your flask? Gin.
1: It's o'clock in the morning?
3: It keeps my hands steady.
2: So it was something else that attracted you to barmaid Miss Polly Hicks then?
3: Yeah, I love her. Will you get off my back? Yeah, we met in a bar. Yeah, her being a barmaid's got its perks. And yeah, I see her at work, but that ain't why I'm with her. She's generous. She just opens up and lets me slip right in.
1: Yes, thank you, Dr. Weeks. Uh, I've talked to her you today.
3: You're welcome. Now, where's my whiskey? Um...
1: Is that it? Over there by that bucket of bloody rags?
3: Can't you read? V-O-D-K-A. Ain't whiskey.
1: Is that Inspector Wolf coming?
3: Shit! I ain't here.
1: Dr. Weeks, thank you very much. Can you exit that a bit out? I regularly announce on social media who future interviews are going to be with. So if you'd like to pose a question for one of my characters, please send these to me at either the email address for the show or on social media when I ask for them.
2: I'm Richard A. Boxhall and you're listening to the Bow Street Society Podcast.
1: We are now joined by retired prison officer and mental health advocate, Gary Clark. Gary, welcome to the BOTUS Society podcast.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
1: You're welcome. And so would you like to just tell us a little bit about yourself and your career to begin with? Um, I'm 52 years of age, married. I've got 2 stepsons, step-sons, um, one who's
0: 10 and one who's 15. So they keep, keep us busy. Two mad dogs, a mad cat, a mad tortoise. <laughs> so all in all, a mad house.
2: A lot of madness going on, I'm getting that. Yes,
0: yes. Yeah. Uh, a mad busy... Noisy house, but fun, um, which is which is important. I left um, the prison service in two thousand and eighteen, and I joined Iceland, the company, not the country, and as a little part-time job, just to keep me out of mischief.
1: How would you describe your experience of working within
0: the prison system? Fascinating, to be honest. Um, I started my service a week before my twenty-first birthday, which seems like a lifetime ago. So, in October nineteen eighty-nine, I. Left home for the first time and went to Prison Service College in Wakefield. Um, Sadly, no longer there, but what a place that was. And um, did nine weeks of prison service training, which was fantastic. And then got my little brown envelope about two weeks before the end of the course that said I'd been posted to Pentonville Prison in North London. A hugely historical prison um, fascinating place to work and the best prison I've worked in.
2: Do you have any choice or do they give you an idea of which area you're going to work in or could you literally have been posted anywhere?
0: Um, not in those days. You you had very little choice back in, you know, 30, 30 years ago. You you joined the National Prison Service, so you've you got the option. You could sort of put down three choices. Remembering back, I think I put Leicester, Glenparver, And Gartry, because I I lived in Leicester. I'm Leicester, born and bred. So that was kind of where I wanted to go and got London, purely because I was single at the time. And that was where the vast majority of of single officers went. Did you used to get help? Would they help find you somewhere to live? No, no. Um, We got the notice. There was five of us off the same training course that went to Pentonville. We got the notice. I'm sure it it was about two weeks before the end of the course. So we then spent the next week or so looking for somewhere to live on the phone and whatever else we finished on the friday in wakefield we all moved down to london on the sunday into a house that we'd found to rent and started work on the monday so we had no time whatsoever so it was it was chaos um to say the least it's very different nowadays but that was certainly how it was for for all staff um, back in sort of like the early 90s.
2: And how was that first shift?
0: It's a very strange experience. Before you go to the training college, you used to do two weeks at your local prison. So I did two weeks in Leicester Prison where my brother-in-law worked. Um, he was, he, my late brother-in-law sadly, he was a, a physical education instructor. So I'd been out in and out of Leicester Prison lots of times before I started. You know, my, my dad was in the job my dad's got three brothers or had three brothers they were all in the job my cousin was in the job so it was a family tradition really um so i always used the line to people that i'd been in and out of prison all my life um, <laughs> you know which i had you know yeah. and, and that was true but i just went home at the end of the night and so going in for my first shift wasn't as daunting as it is for some but still quite daunting because Pentonville is huge.
2: So you probably ended, ended up supporting... Did you say there were new people that started the same day as you? Yes, or?
0: yeah, there was five of us who all started our first shift on the same day, yeah.
2: So you were probably almost a bit of a mentor to them, I would guess.
0: Yeah, a little bit, Um, and it was a little bit similar to when I went. There was, there was um, five of us as well, different five people, or different four other people who started at Leicester. They were all very, very new as well and green and had never been inside a prison until their first day of duty, so... It was very strange for them as well. It's still very strange when you've suddenly got keys in your hand and you're, you know, you're, you're in charge of people and you're, you're supposed to know what you're doing. And...
1: Hmm. So you said about there's a family connection with the sort of that sort of sector. Is that, is that why you went into that sector? Or, was that, or did you always want to be a prison officer?
0: I don't know, really. I always wanted, originally I wanted to join the army. At 16, I failed a medical for the army because I had severe acne. Mm. And and very severe, you know, more than just normal teenage spots. And they considered that would be something that would cause me problems. And so I failed, which I was devastated with, Mm. until a few years later, I sat watching the news and sadly, a a coach full of army squaddies had just been blown up in Northern Ireland. And I turned and remember turning to my mum and saying, oh, my God, I'm so glad I failed that medical. And my mum said, yeah, not as glad as I am. You know, so that was kind of that. And and then you go through the various things. But I suppose really it was probably a natural progression, a natural thing to do. I'd left school at 16. I wasn't the greatest at school, didn't particularly like school, only for sport. You know, that was the only reason I, I wanted to go to school was to play football and cricket. And then I joined Sainsbury's when I was just past 16, worked as a baker for four years until the chance to join the prison service came along and I grasped it. You've also had lots
2: of presumably challenging situations to to deal with. Um, Are there any you can tell us about?
0: Loads. You go through all of them. You know, I've dealt with death. I've dealt with suicide. I've dealt with natural causes. I've dealt with murder. I've even dealt with birth because I managed a mother and baby unit at Peterborough, as was part of my role. I was involved in a riot at Whitemore Prison um, in Cambridgeshire and was also involved in the notorious IRA escape from Whitemore Prison um, in 1993. And five IRA escaped from within the prison, within a prison. So that was quite a scary night And um, when one of my colleagues got shot as part of the escape. It, it's kind of scary and it, and it makes you reflect a little bit on what you're doing. It's a bit of a hidden world mm. behind four walls. The only bit sort of the, the members of the general public see is is what the media um, and TVs want you to see. So,
1: yeah, yeah Um I can imagine sort of knowing that sort of thing can happen going into work how would how did you sort of, sort of put that side to, be able to then carry on going into work or was that is that um, a specific mentality you needed for that or Yeah I think yeah,
0: I think you become a bit hardened to it to be honest I think you know when I, when I joined the service my, my dad was in the job my dad had done 30 years by then um you know he joined in 1960 so you know I was just at the end of 1990 so he'd done 30 years and he said to me What you'll find is that 95% of the job is routine and mundane. We said, but my God, boy, the other 5% will make up for it. (laughs) And and it did. People think that prisons are always lively, and that they are at the moment, you know, they're very different places to they were when I when I started in the early nineties. But you didn't have incidents every day. You didn't have things go on, you know, lots of days were routine and mundane and, and things like that. But then when things did go wrong, they normally went wrong. In quite a big way, mm. you know. I, I hadn't been in the job six months when it was the strange riot. So prisons became very lively across the country after the, you know, the, the, the longest prison riot in the in, in prison history. You know, and it's scary. And if you're not scared when things go wrong, then there's something wrong with you. It's yeah. how you deal with that. Is, is the big thing.
2: I mean, listening to you now, I, I don't think I'd appreciate it that you literally deal basically with the same stuff that your average policeman has to deal with.
0: They are very, very different jobs. I know a lot of policemen. I've known a lot of policemen over the years. And, and the difference for a prison officer is we pretty much know what we're dealing with because we have the history, the background, the knowledge of the people that we look after. The police have no idea lots of the time who they're dealing with. So, you know, and I speak to lots of My friends who are police officers and they will say, you know, they enter a scene, go into a situation. They have no idea. Very often we have pretty much a good idea of what we're going into. Although it doesn't make it any any easier. It does give you that little bit of background. So. That's a yeah. really
1: interesting point, yeah. I do know um, that you have offered your services to authors who are seeking information and advice on the prison system, part of the group that I'm part of, those crime authors you've offered your services there. Um, is there a particular reason why you did that? I think over the years,
0: I've always been very frustrated at people's interpretation of prisons. <laughs> I fully appreciate I'm an I'm a avid reader and audio book listener um, more so. Um, Because of an eye condition, sometimes I struggle to read. It can be very frustrating when people, I think sometimes go as far as making it up Mm. because they haven't got a clue. And I think sometimes actually you're better off to avoid it than make it up at all. And I just think that, you know, just by a little bit of advice, you could actually make it sound far more real. And I get that a real prison would be a really boring TV program. (laughs) You know, if you're going to film it in real time, you know, like I said, you know, you could go days and nothing happened. Um, and then you could have days where you think the world's ended. Although my time in the service didn't end particularly nicely, you know, I am still quite passionate. I've got lots of friends that's still in the job in a very, very difficult job now. You know, I just think that they deserve to be sort of reflected correctly. I think TV's worse than books um, because there's not very often a whole book based within a prison. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of times, crime books are, you know, which is which is generally what I read and listen to. I just have little snippets in and out of prison, but TV drives me mad, to be honest with you, because I don't I don't I don't watch drama programs that involve very much of prisons because they just go so wrong. Mm.
2: Yeah. So, so in what way do you give advice? I mean, do do you ever? I presume you advise on how things actually work. Yeah, the...
0: I've been asked. I put the post on, and I've been quite flabbergasted, really, if that's the right word, <laughs> by the response. You know, and I've become part of, there is a a website, policeadvisors.co.uk, that a gentleman runs. And I've now become, he was looking for a prison expert, use that word loosely. But, you know, (laughs) um, so I'm now on his website and people will ask questions. And if he'll forward them to me to answer, he did yesterday. Sometimes I can answer them very quickly because like the one yesterday was about the process of a a death in custody. You know, while I dealt with that for for two years, Um, that was my role you know, was dealing with, with death in custody, suicide, self-harm. So it kind of just reel it off even a couple of years down the line, you still remember the process. So, and I'll just advise, I know if I don't know the answer, I genuinely know someone that will. Mm. Um, so you kind of lose, use your contacts and, and you'll just answer their question. And it's just procedural, really. Would this happen? Would that happen? It's it's a bit like when you read a book and you you see there'll, there'll be a, a police or will go and visit someone in prison and they just seem to say, You know, oh, we're going to go and visit him this morning, and yet there's no process gone into about, you can't just do that. Mm. You can't just turn up at a prison and visit somebody because you want to do it this morning. You know, there's a process that needs to be gone through. And I know you're not going to explain that in word for word in a book, but actually just showing that you can't just turn up to visit is a little bit more nearer the line.
1: At the beginning of um, the interview, I, I mentioned that you're also a mental health advocate. Did you want to talk a bit about that as well?
0: Yeah, I, I sort of became really interested in mental health when I worked. I was the safe, what was known as the safer custody manager at Peterborough. And so I was responsible for um, self-harm, all the self-harm, suicide, deaths in custody um, and inquests, everything that was around that. And that triggered an interest into why I, I, I wanted to ask the question, why? You know, I, I, I cry if I cut myself. Yet I will watch people who will do it voluntarily. They will cut themselves, you know, and they will harm themselves. And And I could never and I still don't. I never envisaged that i will be able to understand why, and that triggered an interest. And then I met a guy on a prison service conference called Luke Ambler, and Luke had started a charity called Andy's Man Club after his brother-in-law, at twenty-three years of old, took twenty sorry twenty-three years of age, took his own life, and Andy hung himself in a very public place, completely. Shocked his family, no indication to his family that this was going to happen. Although he'd been a troubled young, young man, he'd been in a, into prison a couple of times and whatever else, seemed to be turning his life around, got a young daughter and took his life. And Luke, from the fallout of this and Andy's mum, Elaine, realised there was nowhere for men to talk. Mm. Men don't talk. We don't, you know, if you go down the pub with a group of mates, you don't talk about how you're feeling. You talk about the football, the rugby. It isn't, you know, the amount of times if someone asks you if you're okay, you just say yes, because Mm. that's the answer that people want. They don't want you to answer, no, really, I'm not. That's not what they want to hear most of the time. So that triggered an interest. So I um, went through the process, managed to get a, they run support groups. Andy's Man Club runs a support group for, or runs, 42 support groups now across the country four men over the age of 18 on a monday night and it's just really a chat you mm-hmm. we sit round, we have five questions that you ask every week and and it's and it's a talking shock for men and then i went through my own real depression and through a health issue and issues i had at work and that kind of got me through that to the point where i had suicidal thoughts never never carried any of them out but you know you have those thoughts about is life really worth all this that kind of help from that got me through it and family support as well but I think men's mental health although the stigma is breaking and the work is there to try to get people to talk. It's still got a long way to go. I think what underlines it
2: for me I, when you started talking, I assumed maybe if you were a safety custody officer, it must cover a region, but it wasn't. It was for that one specific prison. So you're one a specific region. prison, yeah.
0: See, when I originally started the role, it was for the female prison only, and I could have a hundred incidents of self harm in a week, and yeah. and you know, and when when you think that you know, sort of eighty percent of female prisoners have a diagnosed mental health issue, diagnosed doesn't say the other 20% have probably got the same, but they're not diagnosed. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you're dealing with some very disturbed and troubled individuals to the point where we, we would have something that was called an ACT book, which is about their care plan. So that was a care book that was, they, if they were at risk of, of suicide or self-harm, you would have a care plan and you would sit down and you would meet with them on a, on a regular basis I had a young girl, and she was only a young girl because she was only 18 years of age when she came to to Peterborough for the first time, and she always stuck in my mind because she was what I called a proper self-harmer. She wasn't someone who scratched the back of her hand or or scratched herself. She would cut herself 100 stitches at a time, you know, proper cuts in her arms, proper dings. Didn't want to die, was quite adamant she didn't want to die, but she just didn't know how else to cope with, with what had gone on in her life. So we, I, because um, she was such a prolific, she was an acute case, I became her case manager. as it normally done at my level unless they're really high risk. And eventually we managed to get her to hospital, which is where she needed to be and which is where the vast majority of them need to be. They don't need to be in prison. Prison officers are not trained mental health people. You know, they, they, they don't have the time and the resources to give the people the care they need. But we got this young lady to hospital. So on the day she was discharged to hospital, we do a case review. And that was her 100th case review. <sighs> Bear in mind, we would meet once a fortnight, formally. Mm. So that just shows you how long we'd been reviewing this young girl.
1: Yeah.
0: And, keep, and keeping her alive. You know, that was, the, that was the top and bottom of it. She then went to hospital. And before she went, I've always been a great advocate of, of writing your feelings down. I think, you know, lots of people can't talk about it, but people can write about it. Mm. So I'd, I'd encouraged her over the time to keep a, a diary as such. And when she left, I gave her a, a blank, empty A4 book and said to her, there you go, look, write it down. Write down how you're feeling. Six months later, she sent it me back full. She'd written everything. She said, I don't want to keep this. I've done what I need to do with it. And I read it. And It made me cry when I read it because it was so honest and so true. I'd had contact with her, haven't had contact with her since I left the service, but had contact with her whilst I was still in the service. And last I heard of her, she was out of hospital. She was living in her own flat, in a job, in a relationship, and life was good. So you kind of see that people say, well, prison doesn't work. No, prison didn't work, but the care she got worked. It didn't work for her because that wasn't the environment she needed. It wasn't until she got out of the prison environment and into the care and the hospital and and things like that, that her life started to turn around. So it is horrific. People don't see what people deal with. If someone dies in prison, it becomes headlines. Mm. we're We're the world's worst people. We've failed again. Someone has died and whatever else, which is in lots of cases can be true. But it doesn't get news headlines that there's hundreds of people every year that we save. You know, do you want me asking what kind of what the ratio was of, of officers to prisoners? Um, if I look at when I managed the female, um, we would have about four hundred female prisoners, and I would have I'm trying to think how many wings are were, two, four, six, eight, sixteen staff. Wow, something like that. Yeah. Mm. So, and that would be the same ratio in any prison. Always, prisons are only there because the prisoners want them to be. Look at strange ways. The prisoners decided they didn't want staff there and for however many days they weren't because there's a damn sight more prisoners than there are prison
1: staff. So what advice would you give somebody who's thinking of going into the prison service as a career?
0: <laughs> what advice would I give them?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'd want to ask them first
0: why are you going in? Mm. Um, the problem you have now, when I, when I joined, the vast majority of people it was a career. You joined as a career. I never envisaged doing any other job I thought I would be there till I was 60 do 40 years in the service and retire and that be be my work in life but hey you know we, we can't predict the future can we no. but I I would say to people why do you want to join and I would also ask them how old they are because the sad part about it now for me is that the joining age of the prison service is 18 18 years of age mm. ridiculous absolutely ridiculous you're asking kids which is what an 18-year-old is at the end of the day. Mm. You're asking a kid to look after experienced criminals, knowledgeable criminals that know the system, that will play you off like there's no tomorrow unless you're as good as they are. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I would say to them, look, that's great. It's great if you want it as a career. Go away. Get some life experience. Come back. In the, if you're at 25 years of age, you still want to join. It's still a passion. Go for it. Crack on because you'll have some life experience. We used to get people come to us to join straight from college, you know, and they'd never had a job before. Not only have they got no life experience, they'd never had a job before, and and then we wonder why we would have issues with people being corrupted and bringing stuff in for prisoners because they suddenly a prisoner would suddenly say to me, "I'll give you a thousand pound if you bring this in for me." A thousand pounds to an eighteen year old who's never had money before is a tremendous amount of money. And they would be bullied and intimidated into doing it. And and then it would happen. So not only, you know, their life would be ruined because they'd be caught in the end. Mm. Just I just think that, yes, it's still on the whole can be a good career. I have to be honest with you. And if you ask people that are still in the service now, it's not the job it was. Um, mm. Years of underinvestment, years of change. You know, it, it, it's a bit like, working in a washing machine sometimes, it just goes round and round and round. You start, so you'll, you'll change. It's a very politically driven job as um, all, all law enforcement and police. This is the same. You'll, you will have a policy. You'll have, you know, whatever party is in power, you will have a policy. They'll think it's going to work. They'll do it, and whatever else. But not only if a party changes, does the policy change, but also if a home secretary changes or a minister of justice, ministry secretary changes, the policy changes. So you don't know what you're doing. You know, it, it's, a, it's a really, really tough job. And over the last sort of year of, of, that we've had, the world's completely changed and the madness that we've had. It's probably the first time that I'm really glad I'm out of it.
2: Gary, yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating. You've really opened my eyes. And I'm sure it'll be the same for everybody else who's, um, who's listening. So thank you so much for talking to us.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's been really interesting. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. That is it for this month but there will be a special bonus show coming out on the 10th of December which is a reading of The Case of Mastermind Moss, one of the stories in this year's casebook collection, The Case of the Fearful Father and other stories which comes out on the same day.
1: Thanks for listening and see you next month.
2: You have been listening to the Bow Street Society podcast. It was written and presented by T.G.
1: Campbell and Richard A. Boxhall. Special thanks to all the contributors including Sabrina Poole, Phil Rowe and Jaden Braniff. You can find out more about the Bow Street Society
2: series by T.G. Campbell at bowstreetsociety.com. You can also find out more through social media. Search for Bow Street Society on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Thank you for listening. All podcast content is the intellectual property of T.G. Campbell.